Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Well, the last few weeks, we watched David on an upward incline. God was blessing him. He was in a position where everywhere he seemed to turn, God was giving him favor and and victory and bringing the ark back uh, in his family. Things were fruitful. And then last week in uh, 2 Samuel uh, 11, we see this story where David at at the, the pinnacle of God's blessings, turns his eyes away from the Lord, turns his eyes onto the things of this world and starts to allow his desires to overtake him. And it sets in motion a course of events that will change Israel forever. And today as we go into 2 Samuel 12, I only wanna read this one chapter today Uh, with the sidebar of going over to Psalm 51 for a little while. But I wanted to focus in on 2 Samuel 12 because the weight of God speaking about the situation, I don't want it to be lost on us. In 2 Samuel 11 and 12, the way the chapters are arranged, in 11 you have David exercising his authority over what God has given him charge over. But the authority that he's operating under isn't as a shepherd, which is what he was called to be. He's exercising his authority as a king like every other nation. And there's these series of verbs. We talked about this last week. There's no emotion tied to them. There's, there's no points of view. There's no dialogue. It's just David sent. He took. He commanded. He ordered. He killed. Just adultery and lies and murder. Well, this week, we're gonna hear from the Lord. Last week was David functioning as a king, and today we're gonna to hear the Lord speak to David as the king over all of the universe. And when he speaks, what stands out to us, hopefully, is the reality that no sin goes unnoticed by Yahweh which is a refreshing and a sobering thought. It is refreshing because for the body of Christ, globally, throughout history, that has been ravished by the enemy, that has been exploited, believers who have been killed for their faith, we are promised that no sin will go unpunished. but it's also sobering for us because it means that there is nothing in your life that you can continue to hide and pretend like God doesn't care or that people won't find out. God cares deeply about you so deeply that he will not allow you to continue to walk in the way that you have been walking by hiding things that defame his name and dishonor the church and bring shame on you and your family. He will no longer allow those things to keep being hidden in the shadows. He is the God of light and he brings everything to the light. 
it is a sobering thought. Because if you continue to reject his love and kindness, what you will receive is the bright, shining revelation of his glory that will expose the wickedness of your sin. Sin, real sin. Not sin that we rename and call something different so it's socially acceptable, but sin the way the Bible talks about sin. Sin as a thing that gets deep in our bones and affects us that we're born with, that, that permeates every aspect of society. There's not a corner of the globe that is untouched by this. There's not a thing that you'll behold that doesn't have this slant of sin affecting it. God wants us to know through 2 Samuel 12, it doesn't matter if you're a king or a peasant, he knows. And he's gonna offer you mercy if you turn from it, but if you don't, you're gonna suffer the consequences. So that's what I wanna explore today. The consequences of sin and how in God's great mercy, he washes away many of the consequences of our sin, but not all the consequences of our sin. That in his great love and compassion, he leaves some consequences of our sin on the table as a deterrent for us to not keep going back to that sin and to behold the lives of others who rebelled against the Lord and we see their consequences as a deterrent for us to also walk that same path. Here's the truth, God has washed away the consequences of your sin. The wages of sin is death, but he has washed that away, he has swallowed up death. You are now promised eternal life if you put your faith in Christ. But if you continue down this wicked path, and trying to hide this one little area, he will expose it and you will suffer the consequences here on earth for that. That's what I wanna explore today in 2 Samuel 12, so let's get to it. 2 Samuel 12, we're gonna start in verse one. So this is after David thinks he's gotten away with having an affair with Bathsheba and murdering her husband so no one will know about it. We pick up in verse one. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Now Nathan is a prophet. Nathan is probably about David's age. So Nathan comes to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city. The one was rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and he brought it up and he, it grew up with him and with his children and it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. And there came a traveler to the rich man And the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. 
And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan, looking deep into David's eyes, said, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you as king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you into the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you, out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the son. Let's pause there. God sends a prophet to deal with David. And when the prophet comes to David, he doesn't lead with his sin. He leads with a parable. Because he needs David to understand the weight of what he's done because in David's mind, he is convinced that because he is the king and he is anointed and he has the power, that he has the autonomy to do whatever he wants. But that same act that David committed framed within the context of a parable has a new light. And so what Nathan does is he comes to David and he says, David, I have a story for you. But David doesn't know it's a parable. He thinks it's a true story. And so Nathan says, there's this one guy who's got nothing. And in the parable, the one guy who has nothing, this is Uriah. And this little lamb is his wife. And just from the parable, you can understand the relationship that Uriah had with Bathsheba. It wasn't a failed marriage. Uriah loved his wife. He cherished his wife. But this was all he had. And in the story, you've got a king, this other rich man. It's his King David. And in the story, the king has a visitor come to him. Who is the visitor in the story? The visitor is David's desire. David has everything, and he gets a visitor one day while he's walking on the roof of his house. And this visitor is his own desires, and he wants to make a sacrifice. He wants to do something for these desires. He wants to to have these desires over for a meal. But rather than take from the blessings that God has already given him of the multiple wives that he already has, 
He goes and takes the one wife from the man who only has one. And David, as he hears this story, immediately is filled with anger. He's furious. Now in David's mind, all we're doing is talking about lambs. It's just livestock. But David is furious because he's so delusional at this point that he has more compassion over his people and livestock than he did for a man's wife. This is what sin does to us. It distorts your reality so that you start arguing that evil is good and good is evil. And so the the prophet, through the word of God, comes and delivers this message and it strikes David in his heart and David's response is, this man needs to pay. He needs to pay four times over. And Nathan says, David, you are that man. You're that man. Now before we get too deep in the story, I want us to understand that this story is absolutely about God dealing with David, but I can't miss the fantastic way that God chooses to deal with David here. Because God is dealing with David, but David is also a representative of of something in Israel. David is the king which means David is the head and the embodiment of the government of Israel. God uses prophets to speak truth to government. Here's, this is what government is. Government is a collection of human beings who have been given power or they take it and they exercise that power over the people they rule. That's government. Now you can have godly government, you can have wicked government, but in government on planet Earth, it is always filled with human beings and human beings are sinful. And what happens is when you get a collection, a multitude of wicked, sinful people that consolidate power, more often than not, what it leads to is a lording of that power over the people and an elevation of the people in power so that they eventually begin to feel that they're not just lording the power over the people, they're actually over the people. And not just over the people, they're over the laws that are over the people. So that the laws that apply to everyone else don't apply to them. This is what we see in King David. It's not just a man exercising his authority. It's a man who's the head of a government over Israel exercising his his authority in such a way that would say, the rules that apply to everyone else don't apply to me. Now follow me here. How does God, or how does anybody, speak to a group of people 
who are convinced that they are above everything. They have exalted themselves collectively to a place where they feel like they are over everyone and everything and every law. Who speaks to a person like that? God speaks to a person like that. God still holds authority over human beings who exalt themselves over other people and laws because there's one place you can't exalt yourself over and that is God Almighty. You can't exalt yourself over him. So how does God choose to speak to wicked and corrupt government? Prophets. This is one of my biggest arguments on why I think that the office of prophet is still valid today. I am not a cessationist. I do not think the gifts of the spirit and the offices have ceased. I think they are very much alive and very much needed because prophets speak to government. Now, where does the office of prophet reside today? It resides within the church. God's voice resides within the local church church, the global church. God speaks in the context of his people. All right, Ephesians 4, 11. We have these offices that God has given the local church to build them up and equip the saints for the work of the ministry, but biblically we also see some of these offices doing other things too, not just equipping the saints for the work of ministry, but also speaking truth to government. Do you remember a little story from our series in Matthew chapter 14 verses three through five when the prophet John the Baptist told King Herod that his marriage was wicked? Prophets speak to government. But here's the issue. When the prophets start getting a little too close to government. When they start making alliances with government in order to get benefits from government, what they do is lose the ability to speak God's word to government. And this is where we are today. One of the reasons why we have, and I'm not playing politics, I'm I'm not trying to pick a side, I'm gonna just paint with the broadest brush possible because we are living in wicked days in America. We are watching at every level of government, local all the way up to national, become completely unhinged and giving themselves over to all manner of wickedness and making that wickedness law, but not submitting themselves to the same laws that they make everyone else submit to. Who is supposed to be keeping government in check? Whose responsibility is that? It's the church's responsibility. The church is supposed to be the prophetic voice that calls out sin and calls people to repentance. This is the way that the Bible outlines how this is supposed to be functioning for us. The church is supposed to be making it abundantly clear. There are consequences nationwide for you as a member of government functioning the way that you are in the world today. There are consequences. Now, here, David's consequences. 
are actually the ones that he spoke with his own mouth. David said, whoever did this needs to suffer four times for what they did. And what we're gonna find out as we continue through the story is that David is actually gonna lose four children. The son who, the child who was unnamed in the story is going to die. His son Amnon in 2 Samuel 13 is going to die. Absalom is gonna die in 2 Samuel 18. And Adoniah is gonna die in 1 Kings 2. But we are also told that there's other consequences to his sin. The way that he lives with violence and the way he lives by the sword, we're told that the sword is not going to depart from his house in verse 10. You're gonna set a standard for the way things function in your house, well guess what, your kids are gonna follow that standard. You're gonna live by the sword, your kids are gonna live by the sword. You wanna hide adultery in the darkness, God is gonna expose that adultery before all of Israel and it's going to just permeate, like literally your own wives are gonna be given over into other men. So there's consequences for David's sin, but there's also consequences for us. The co- so here's, here's one of the consequences. When the church ceases to be God's voice in a country to government, then that country no longer hears God's voice on any specific matters. If there's no one proclaiming this is what God thinks about a thing, then no one cares what God thinks about a thing, and then the country goes wild and they don't usually last very long. It would be fascinating if we could take, I don't know, a a trip, all of us together, let's go over and let's go study the Philistines. Oh, we can't, they're not around anymore. Let's go study the Ammonites. Oh, they're not around anymore. Let's go study Babylon. Oh, it's not around anymore. Do you see where I'm going with this? At some point, when God's people in an area stop being God's voice, and that government becomes so corrupt, God says, that's enough. And you can't go to those places anymore. You can't visit them anymore. They look completely different because God says, okay, if you don't, if if you wanna reject me, then I'm gonna reject you. This is what's so fascinating and important about reading the prophets of Israel. If you don't read Jeremiah and Ezekiel, if you don't read Isaiah, you miss the reality that they were prophets to Israel but also prophets to the nations. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel are filled with oracles against the nations. God had things to say about Nineveh. God had things to say about Babylon. And God has things to say about America. But if the church isn't saying those things because we're too busy being in bed with America, we will lose our prophetic voice as a consequence and we will ultimately lose this country. Now I'm not trying to be too political. You're not gonna see American flag up here behind me next week. We're not gonna do like a 4th of July Sunday. I'm just trying to bring the reality of what it looks like for a government to reject God as creator and for the church to go silent about it. There are consequences.
I said this in our prayer when we started for uh, Psalm 115, three through eight. When you worship idols, you become like them. And that's one of the consequences that we're seeing. When the church worships government because we think that we can get something from them, then we will become like them and we will be robbed of our voice. If, if the people of this country being led by wicked government teach the people to worship idols, the people will become blind and deaf and dumb. They will become like what they worship and it will become even harder for the word of God to be declared in a country because the people are too blind and too deaf to hear it and see it. This is why when you have a conversation with somebody in a classroom or at work, it feels like you're talking to a robot. It feels like all logic and common sense has been thrown out the window and it doesn't matter who you're talking to, all you get is some soundbite that has been repeated off of YouTube or that you, you know this person watched some news talking head and they got one little thing and all they do is just repeat that. They don't know how to think for themselves. Why is it like, because that's the consequences of sin, folks. When you worship idols, you become like them. And if all you do is watch sound bites on YouTube, you become nothing more than a soundbite on YouTube. That's what's happening. And how do I know it? Because I'm watching it happen in 2 Samuel 12. This is the command, this is, this is the byproducts, the consequences of sin at the top level of leadership in a country, and it trickles down to everybody. David, what is your family gonna be like? It's gonna be a nightmare because this is what you wanted. I gave you everything. And if there was something you didn't want, all you had to, all you had to do was ask for it. I would have blessed you, I gave you everything. Why did you want this one thing? This one thing that I told you not to do, no, you can't have that, this is somebody else's. Oh, I want it so bad, all right. Or you're gonna become like what you worship. Your family's gonna become like what you worship. You worship the sword and using power to get the way you want, okay, well then that's all that's gonna be in your family. Your family's gonna become like that. You won't have that tenderness that your family used to have. You remember that gratitude I showed you in the wilderness and then you started showing to the people when you took uh, your crown, gone. It's heartbreaking, but we have to behold this because it is a warning. Consequences are a warning so that we won't do the same thing. Because we're convinced, well, I mean, I know that these three people touched this hot stove and they got burned, but like, I don't know, I'm kind of quick. Ah, I got burned. Can you believe that? Yes, we can all believe it. Because you're not looking at the consequences of everybody who did the exact same thing. You aren't special. You are going to suffer the consequences like everybody else. Look at the consequences as a deterrent. Let's go to verse 13. David's response to Nathan. I have sinned against the Lord. Now, some of us might look at that and say, well, it's kind of a, David, could you like grovel a little bit? Like, is there like a tear in your eye when you say that? 
And also you didn't just sin against the Lord, you sinned against Uriah, and then there's, there's also Bathsheba, and there's also like Joab because you, you made him complicit in the whole thing. But David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. He's gonna show compassion on you. He still loves you even though he's disappointed in you. You will not die, but there's consequences. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And David, David therefore, sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted. He went in and lay down all night on the ground, and the elders of the house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Now David's response is, I have sinned against the Lord. David's, what's in David's mind here is that yes, David did sin against many people, but his first and chief sin was against the Lord. Because had David respected the boundaries that God had set up for him, David would have never sinned against Bathsheba, never sinned against Uriah, never sinned against Joab, never sinned against all of Israel as a wicked leader. There's a simple boundary, God's boundary, don't do this. And if you don't cross it, none of the other sins would have happened. So David backs up the whole situation and realizes that all of this started because I have, an, I have a God issue. I don't have an adultery issue. I don't have an addiction issue. I don't have an anger issue. I have a God issue. I don't see him as supreme over my life. I don't see him as loving and kind and generous to me. I see him, if I'm honest, as a father who's robbing me of the things that I really want. That's our real problem. So he goes through this process of repentance. And in this process, it's important to notice that he doesn't hide he doesn't make excuses. He doesn't tell Nathan the story in a better light like his predecessor, Saul. Do you remember when the prophet Samuel came to Saul and called him out on his sin? Saul argued with him. No, 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 it's not me. I'm not the sinner. They're the ones who didn't want to kill the king. They're the ones who wanted to save the best livestock when we were told to go and utterly destroy all of them. No, no, it's not me, it's them. David has none of that. David owns up to his sin and he repents. And he doesn't make any excuses for it, he confesses it. And he expounds on his confession in the Psalm that he wrote, Psalm 51. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there real quick. I don't wanna read the whole thing, I just wanna read the first couple verses. Maybe like, uh, let's go like one through 12. I just want you to hear what's in his mind when you see him say, I have sinned. Psalm 51 verse one, this is David crying out to God in private prayer. Have mercy on me, O God. 
according to your steadfast love. Not according to what I've done, but according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. So this whole sin thing that started in the garden, it's affected every human for all of history. You're born into this is what David is saying. Six, behold, you delight in truth. In the inward being, you teach me wisdom in the the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness, and let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities and create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Here's the thing about David. There is no provision in the Old Testament Hebrew law to cover the sin of what David did. There is no animal sacrifice that you can make and the blood would cover David's sin. Leviticus 20, verse 10, and Deuteronomy 22, 22, very clearly state that because of what David did, the only option David has is to die. There's a misconception in the church that like what David is doing here is, is he's, he's praying and he's pleading and, and, and he's appealing to, to God's loving kindness and there's probably something rooted that like there's, there's, there's gotta be like some, some strategy for when this kind of thing happens because David's just too good of a guy. I got bad news for you. There is no strategy. When this sin occurs, the only option is death. There is no two doves that you can get and make a sacrifice and it's gotta be a lamb but one years old and and none of that. You have no other options. And so what David does is he throws himself on God's mercy. And he starts pleading, Lord, wash away my sin, blot out my transgression, show me mercy. When he says in verse seven, purge me with hyssop, hyssop, was a plant that was used, we see it in Exodus 12, When the priests would offer the sacrifice, they would take this plant called hyssop. It was a long plant at the end, it looked like a brush, like a painter's brush. And what they would do is they would take hyssop and they would dip the end of the hyssop branch, like a brush, into the blood and they would wipe it on the doorposts. And they would smear it on the priests and they would smear it on the mercy seat. What David is pleading is that God finds some kind of blood that's greater than any blood that's ever been shed, dip that blood in and smear it all over me. Not on the ark, not on the doorpost. I'm completely outside of the whole provision that you have set up for this law. I've got no options. 
If you don't intervene, I'm dead. Smear the blood on me and cleanse me. Restore the joy of my salvation because I have messed it up. What David is asking for in Psalm 51 is for God to remove the consequences of his sin. God, reverse it. Turn it around. He's pleading for his child's life. And the good news is that God does remove some of the consequences. But the reality is that God doesn't remove all of the consequences. Let's go to verse 18. On the seventh day, the child died. The servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him and he didn't listen to us. How then can we say to him that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw the servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, yes, the child is dead. So David arose from the earth, he washed and anointed himself, he changed his clothes, and he went to the house of the Lord, and he worshiped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. And a servant said to him, what, what is this thing that you've done? You, you fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child is dead, you arose and you ate food. And he said, well, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said to myself, well, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me and that the child may live. I heard what Nathan the prophet said, but who knows? Maybe if I ask my father to reverse this consequence of my sin, he might do it. But I got my answer. Now he's dead. So why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? No, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. And after this, David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her and she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon. Yeah, it's that Solomon. And the Lord loved him. And he sent a message by Nathan the prophet, and they called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Jedidiah was the nickname that God gave Solomon, and it means beloved of the Lord. Because God loves when people repent, and he is able to make gardens in the middle of a desert. God takes great joy in taking your mess and turning it around. David asked the Lord to keep his son alive, but the answer was no. And it's a reminder to us that some consequences of our sin remain with us our entire life. Now I want you to hear me, this is not to say that every bad thing that happens to you is a consequence of sin. This is not for you to take away, well I'm sick in my bones and that must be because I I sinned or I did something. Here's the reality. That may very well be. You might be sick in your bones because of sin. That happens. 
Paul talks about it in Corinthians. But it doesn't mean that that is always the truth. We're given John chapter nine, verse two, when a man was healed and the question comes out, hey, who sinned, this guy or his parents? And, God, and, and Christ responds, nobody sinned. He was struck with a sickness because it put God's glory and power on display. So that might be why you're sick. But do not rule out the reality that one of the reasons why you are suffering the consequences you may be suffering now, it might be tied to sin and you can't dismiss that. Let me expound on that a little bit. If you are prone to gossip, which is a sin, and you are found out as a gossip, where you are spreading rumors and lies and information with people, and it's exposed, and you repent to the people, you repent to God. God is faithful to forgive you of your sin and your iniquity. And we're instructed to, to do the same. But there is also the consequence that I'm not gonna trust you in the same way that I did before. You follow? I love you and I forgive you. But I'm going to have great pause in sharing information with you the next time. That's a very simple one. Here's another one. If I were found to be addicted to drugs or any kind of addiction, or if I was found to be one who mishandled finances, or if I committed an adultery, uh, committed adultery while I was pastor here at the church, I could come before the Lord, I could repent, he would forgive me of my sin, but I would no longer be qualified to ever lead a church ever again. Are you hearing me? There is no scenario where a pedophile who has repented and turned to the Lord is ever gonna serve in our nurseries at this church. There are real consequences, even though that God, in his mercy, loves and washes away many of the consequences of sin, there are still some consequences that remain. And the question stands before us, why God? Why not wipe away all of them? And it's because of what I said at the beginning. In God's love and his mercy, he allows some consequences to remain to keep us from further sin. if the church would actually exercise some discipline in matters that need it, and it becomes clear that if you violate this, then these are the consequences, maybe these two other people in the church who are considering being tempted and walking down the same path, suddenly they say, I like this, I like the community of God, I like being in God's people more than I like the consequences that might happen to this, I don't want any part of this. You see the beauty of what consequences bring? They act as a boundary around us to say, don't, don't go there, because if you do, the same thing that happened to this person is gonna happen to you. Oh, well, I don't want that. 
but it goes beyond just the consequences of being able to, to, to examine our own lives. It goes within the boundary of teaching other people. How is the world supposed to be attracted to the gospel message if what they behold in the church looks just like the way that they're living today? If there is no difference to what happens inside that pretty little white building with a cross on, on top, if there's no difference that well, what happens to those people and the way they live and the way that I live, why would I bother myself by getting up on Sunday morning? I could sleep in. I could avoid the whole nonsense. All of it is a waste of time. This is what we're teaching the world because we are not a holy and set apart people. We are a people who so desperately want to be liked. God, we want the world to like us. We want our coworkers to like us and we lie to ourselves and we tell us if they like us, then they'll hear what we have to say. And so we've got to be a little bit like them. We can't be too weird because if we're too weird and too peculiar, then our message has no relevance to them. I got bad news for you. That whole way of thinking, it's unbiblical. You are a peculiar people. And the way that you live is so different, it should be so different than the way that the world lives that it becomes an attractive thing because it's nothing like what the enemy is selling. Do you follow me? The way that you live your life should be so different and so at rest and at peace and so filled with joy that this world who has no joy and is mostly medicated and hates their wives and hates their husbands and hates their children and hates their job and thinks that the only thing to live for is retirement, but once they get there, that's not even that good, so now they want to divorce their spouse and try it on their own because everything that they've been sold that is the American dream, it, it isn't what they felt. When they turn around and they see you and what you're like, it doesn't look like what they've been sold, it looks, so, it looks completely different then their appetite starts to be stirred and the Spirit of God moves. I have this conversation with my kids all the time. When they go to work, every time my son leaves for work, I, rem I remind him, I look at him and say, hey, remember why you're going to work. It's not to make money. You're there for a reason. And if you're not gonna be there for that reason, you might as well find a new job. And that goes for all of us. You're there wherever you work, wherever you live, wherever your house is, wherever those neighbors are placed around you. You are there for a reason, and that reason is to be a city on a hill. You are supposed to be bright and shining and completely different than the rest of the world so that when they see the consequences of you living a holy life and they look at the con consequences of them living a wicked life, there is no question about which life is better to live. This whole story reminds us that God is a God of mercy and love. And, he, and, and in his great mercy and love, he washes away our sins if we come and we repent to him. But also in his mercy and his love, he doesn't wipe away all of the consequences of our sin. That record that you hold, it's gonna follow you for the rest of your life. And let it be a deterrent from ever making a stupid decision like that ever again. Let's finish the story in verse 26. 
This is an odd transition. Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. Now we're getting back up to the very beginning of chapter 11 and we're finding out the rest of the story. That war that was going on with the Ammonites over in Rabbah, the one that Uriah got killed in, Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah, moreover I have taken the city of waters. Now then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it's gonna be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of the king in his head and it weighed, and it's, the weight of it was a talent of gold. A talent is about 75 pounds. And in it was precious stone and it was placed on David's head and he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns and thus he died. Excuse me, this, thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Why, why, why did the author include that? Is he just answering our curiosity? What happened in battle? Hey, great, after all this bad stuff, David got to wear a big heavy crown on his head. Well, in a way, it's not to satisfy your curiosity, but it's to give you the picture of what happened at the end of the story. The picture reveals David, the winner, wearing this 75-pound crown on his head, but he wasn't really the winner. That's the point of the story. The author brackets what's happening in this war with this failure at home because he wants you to see that David is victorious in battle and he's a loser at home. He's got this big crown on his head, but when he heads back to his house, he's got nothing but division. His men love him, but his family despises him. The battle was won, but the real fight for holiness was lost. And this stands our application for today. That you can win public victories and lose private ones. And everyone can think that you are the bee's knees, except for your family. That a, that a public ministry and a public persona means nothing when your private character is in ashes. It also stands to remind us that you can repent and be cleansed from your sin, but some consequences of your sin still remain and those consequences stand there as evidence of why you shouldn't do this again. But it also reminds us, as we talked about at the beginning of the chapter, that there are consequences to being liked and being popular in the public square. And those consequences are that you will lose your prophetic voice. When you spend more time making sure that people like you and are impressed by you, you're robbed of the ability to speak the truth to them because you're too busy thinking about something else. And the story of David is so jarring, it upsets all of our comfortable religious equilibriums because it reminds us that sin is crouching at the door and it's waiting to devour us. This is why I started the way I did. Sin is destructive. It isn't beautiful. That affair that you've been fantasizing about, it isn't gonna bring you happiness, it's gonna bring you destruction. The lust that you have in the heart for things that God has told you no about, it's gonna eat you alive and destroy your life. 
that peace and tranquility that you've been chasing and recreational drugs or drinking or friends that you know are a bad influence on you, it's not gonna end well for you. You're probably gonna end up with a criminal record spending most of your life on the other side of prison bars. That's what sin doesn't tell you. On the surface, when you're watching it, it looks like something that is just, man, it's what you've always wanted. It's gonna fulfill every desire. It's gonna be the thing you've always wanted, but it never sells you the whole story. When you finally get it, you realize that all it brings is death. It leaves destruction in its wake. It's not what it promises. This is why we have 2 Samuel 11 and 12 because it, sh- it starts off showing us a man who is a king who gets what he wants, and then it shows a greater king showing him the consequences of living that way. So, praise God that there's a cure for sin outside of ourselves, outside of our good works. Praise God that putting faith in Christ will wash away your sins. It will wash away many of the consequences of your sin. It will make you a new person. Praise God for that. Praise God for Christ, a better king than David, who doesn't exploit his people, but loves his people. And praise God for a king like David, who after he failed, he picked himself up and he went and worshiped. So don't follow his example in 2 Samuel 11, but follow his his example in 2 Samuel 12 and Psalm 51. And pray this, church, God purge me with hyssop that I will become clean. Wash me of my sins. I repent for being so self-centered and selfish and wicked and filled with lust. I repent for being an idol worshiper and wanting things that were created by inferior man more than I wanted the creator, the one who made my very flesh and blood. That is what we pray after we read these stories. We are confronted with the reality that sin is not a game. It is a lion that wants to eat you. It is a fire that will consume everything and leave you in ashes. But there is a sweet and glorious king who is holding his hand out to you today and saying, you don't have to live like that anymore. Turn and repent. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.